Oh, hello, everyone. Thanks again for, for downloading the podcast. Rather than the usual audible introduction, which I'm sure everyone's really used to now, uh, I have a bit of an announcement. Uh, there is a capital company based in Berlin in Germany called Blue Yard that is putting together a quantum industry event on the 22nd of June this year in Munich. They've partnered up with Google's Quantum AI Lab, who are responsible for, for many results that you may have seen in the field of quantum computing and quantum technology development. And they've also managed to bring together a large amount of the recent startups uh, that are focused on building quantum technology and quantum software. Now, they're looking for participants and they're looking for people to be engaged in this event. Um, I've put links in the podcast description below. Um, feel free to check it out. Um, if you have any questions, please either email us or tweet at us and we can gladly put you into contact uh, with the people who are organizing this. So thanks again for listening and downloading and on with our next episode. Well, hello everyone. Uh, thanks again for downloading this next episode of Meet the McQuanics. Uh, this is another live podcast because uh, now I'm based in Sydney and there's a lot more quantum people around here uh, who are willing to chat than uh, in my previous position back in Japan. So I'm uh, quite pleased today to be sitting down with uh, Chris Grenade, um, who's a research fellow at the University of Sydney and basically a co-research fellow of me in the, the Centre for Engineered Quantum Systems, which is based in Australia. Uh, so, Chris, thanks for giving me an hour of your time. Uh, well, thanks for having me. So, we usually start these things off the same way as uh, sort of a bit of a bio. Um, where did you come from? How did you end up in Australia? There seems to be a lot of you North Americans that are involved in the centres, especially in Sydney. Um, so, give us a bit of a run-through of sort of what got you involved in quantum and uh, basically how you ended up in Australia? Well, I mean, I suppose the simple answer is uh, I started my undergrad in Alaska, mm -hmm. and at the time I basically couldn't make up my mind. Did I want to do physics? Did I want to do computer science? Did I want to do math? And one of the advantages of like small sort of state school sort of thing is I didn't have to decide. I could double major, triple major kind of thing and mm -hmm. go along. And um, I wound up hearing a talk from Robin Bloomkahoot uh, when he came back to Alaska at one point that was about quantum information. And I was like, that, that, <laughs> that sounds fun. I get to use everything I've been working on and, you know, hadn't really made up my mind. And so, you know, wound up after that, a bit of a long story, but like interning at MIT with uh, Scott Aronson. Mm -hmm. um, and then I did my master's at the Perimeter Institute and continued on to do a PhD at University of Waterloo with the Institute for Quantum Computing. Um, and, you know, while doing that, one of the things that I really liked doing a lot was the sort of theory that was directly useful to experiment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you meant uh, quantum characterization, verification, and validation. Bit of a mouthful, but that's, you know, the and perhaps unfortunate moniker it gets given, right, winds up being a very good place for that. There's a lot of ways that that gets used very close to hardware of we need to know what our system is doing so we can diagnose it. So that, that, that was a really neat research program for that, I think. And uh, my supervisors, uh, my, my current supervisor now, Steve Flamia, um, is very prominent in that field and you know, we've interacted a couple times, so um, wound up that Australia then was a pretty natural place to continue mm -hmm. that line of thought uh, in QCVV. Did you work with Steve before you came to Australia? I didn't work directly with him, no. Mm -hmm. um, 
I mean, I, it, we were aware of it, but it, but uh, no, it. So mostly, um, in at the University of Waterloo, aside from directly my supervisor and the other students in my group, the people like external to my group that I worked a lot with were uh, Chris Ferry and mm -hmm. uh, Nathan Wee. Okay. Um, and those have continued both to be very good collaborations. So I mean, you're obviously a theorist and. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of your work is focused on, on helping out experimentalists and, and building tools that, that help them build and characterize and, and operate their quantum systems. But do you see yourself more as a physicist or are you really pushing into, I want to see tech development, I want to see quantum technology move out of labs and uh, into I, more of the commercial sector? I mean, I, there's almost an existential question of what is a physicist at that mm -hmm. point. That there's a lot of things which we call physics or we don't call physics that we used to that got split out. I mean, a modern physics education really feels to me like a hodgepodge of different topics that are kind of loosely correlated in some historical sense. And that's okay. That That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But I think we spend a lot of time trying to divide that a little too, <laughs> it, you know, into physics, not physics. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, I think that that excludes areas where it really can influence tech development or where tech development can be useful to us um, in more fundamental approaches. You know, so one example I like of with that is quantum metrology. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're looking at quantum metrology, that's a statistical problem, right? How, do, what do I learn the field to be uh, this magnetometer given uh, the data I observe from it? And so if you treat that with the best statistics that you can, then you get advantages. Mm -hmm. And so now even having posed this problem, I have to talk about what the physics are, what sort of, a, in order to build a statistical model, I have to talk about what measurement is to build the next step of that statistical model. I have to talk about statistics to use that model. I have to talk about programming to talk about how I read all of that in. And so far, I've not said anything even about the device, and I've involved three different fields. Yeah, yep. And is this fundamental? Well, it can be if you're looking, you're building a magnetometer to look at really fine new um, ideas that just haven't been, we haven't been able to probe before. Is this tech development? Well, if you want to go and sell one of these, then yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, you know, so it, it doesn't really nicely fit into either of those, but it's a thing that, you know, Equus, for instance, really. <laughs> As really, an interest in, right? Yeah, so I very mean, much their, their bread and butter at the moment. Right. And even there, you know, we've just a kind of simple 10,000 foot view of you have to talk about at least three different entire disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I, I, you know, what, where I've tended to sit, perhaps because of that background, is places where those disciplines have to communicate with each other, mm -hmm. where I have to say, understand enough physics to build that statistical model, enough statistics to use it, enough programming to implement it, you know, and it, it and I, I don't know, that, that's a place I really like doing research. I think that there's a lot of interesting things on the boundaries between tech development, between fundamental, between these different disciplines. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's probably quite useful that our podcast two episodes ago was actually with your collaborator, Chris Ferry because he did give us a little bit of background onto what you two have worked together. Um, right. You have published quite a lot together. So in terms of maybe your more recent research since you've come to Australia, or you can go back further if something you found quite useful and exciting, sort of give us sort of a roundabout summary of what your focus has been in on 
control characterization and, and whatnot of, of controllable qubit systems? I mean, where does your work fit in to the plethora of what's going on both on the experimental side and the theory side? Um, I mean, I think that's, so let me think for a second. Um, so where a lot of my work has been lately is with respect to practicality. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, it's not new, but it's saying what of the things we've done before can we do more practically so that it's easier to use in experiments, so that it's easier for theorists to use in modeling experiments, so that, uh, because there is a gap, right, of saying, hey, look, here's a shiny new tool, go and use it, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. well, okay, it doesn't look much like what I've already done, it doesn't match the assumptions that I have when I build experiment, you know. So a lot of the focus has been on that practicality. So, uh, you know, I mean, this is, uh, the work with Chris Ferry and several of our collaborators um, on QInfer, for instance, has been with that, of taking this library we've been developing for a while and really making a big push to make it as easy to use as possible for the kinds of things that we hope that, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. people, and, and, you know, that's in fruition. So one of the uh, main other main developers on QInfer, Ian Hinks, and I uh, put out a paper with my former, uh, sorry, my PhD supervisor recently that was, really going through all of the different practical steps in using Bayesian inference and in vCenters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the day, you can see, here's the advantage you get out of it. And it's a significant advantage in terms of the accuracy with which you could estimate Hamiltonian parameters. Because, um, I mean, this is one of the big things. I mean, I, I quite love it when I, I meet a theorist of your, your sort of bent, because you actually do implement this stuff. This is not just wallowing away in some room with a pen and paper and a whiteboard. You're actually collaborating with experimentalists and actually showing the results that you've been developing on the theoretical side. Yeah, and I mean, it, one of the things I found really useful in developing that sort of a perspective is, well, a lot of the commonality in terms of skills development, in terms of expertise between theory and experiment, winds up being programming. Mm -hmm. You know, so if a, a when I was in PhD, one of the major things that I did as a theorist in an experimental group was go into the lab and run control software. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was really exciting. It was like, here's a new piece of hardware. You know, we haven't really played with something like this before. What can we do with it? Sometimes it was really boring. Oh, hey, this config file breaks if there's a space anywhere in it. Go debug that. Right. That actually happened. <laughs> um, it, you know, so, but what, you know, whether or not that particular day's task happened to be exciting, and many times it was, what really remained was in order to do that task, in order to actually help program in the lab, I had to understand and develop that understanding of what the experiment was. You know, I had to be able to point to there's an AWG. What does it do? Okay, that's what it does. You know, and walk all the way through how you use an AWG and a microwave mixing circuit. It, you know, and that, that's, it's, it's a perspective that I think has been very helpful in the collaborations that I've had in trying to make things as practical as we can. Because, you know, I have to understand where people are coming from when they're trying to develop, you know, their research. Whether that be on the theory side that, you know, we're trying to say, hey, look, here's, you know, the stats that you can use with your theory. 
or whether it's to experimentalists of here's how you model your system, mm -hmm. here are tools that you can use to learn properties of it. Uh, you know, I mean, the worst thing I can do is walk into a lab and act like I know uh, it, it know everything instead of having learned the skills of how to listen to what their yeah, yeah. assumptions are and why they make those assumptions. What uh, sorts of design constraints do they have? What sorts of, right? Um, and that's, uh, yeah, so I mean, sitting between those, I think, is, it, you know, it, it provides a lot of good perspective to just get down and dirty and because you've worked with quite a few. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you've done papers with NMR people, diamond, iron traps, superconductors? Uh, well, so I mean, so far... You've um, done quite a big variety of, of experiments. So far there's... Uh, so I mean, I've, I don't want to over-claim here. I, it, so, so far there's not been um, a lot of experimental use of these ideas. Yeah, I mean, there has been the NV paper that I mentioned. Uh, there are efforts under development in a lot of these. Um, and, but, it, you know, so I mean, a lot of my... Um, I suppose where I'm going with this is yeah. that in the distinction of all these different hardware approaches for qubits, is yeah. the ones that you've found to be trickier to deal with than others? Um, are there systems that you could believe that when you move to large scale in terms of controlling and characterizing and et cetera, et cetera. They're just going to be easier with some systems because of the They physics. all have their own tricks, right? So, I mean, I, I'm not trying to, you know, both sides or every, equivocate, but rather I think that there's a lot of things which are just very difficult to compare or make such judgments about at this stage. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I've mentioned in Vs a couple of times, you know, the, the measurement model for that is much more complicated than you might expect in that you've got a lot that you have to worry about fluorescence is interfering. It, it fluorescences and how that composes with dark counts, bright counts on your detector, and both of those matter as far as thermal expansion of different parts of your apparatus mm -hmm. with respect to each other. But once you get through that, the system itself is very clean. You're just viewing it through this kind of messy statistical model. Right. Okay, so fine, you know, we worked that out, and now we get a lot of benefits at with the NV itself. Um, you know, but I can compare to other systems where maybe measurement is a lot simpler, but it, you don't get quite the um, control that you might like out of, or you might not get the fabrication you might mm -hmm, like out mm -hmm. of, or you get different coherence times out. I mean, that there's, you know, and that's before even getting to anything about scaling, right? That I, I, I think that each of these systems is quite unique. And I mean, part of what I think makes that exciting from, say, tech development, as you mentioned earlier, is that also then means that there's a lot of regimes that each of these different modalities, you know, get to explore. So, you know, pick your favorite uh, modality for qubits. If that winds up not working out to be a scalable quantum information processor, it still explores a regime in that parameter space that is useful for other kinds of devices. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, and we, it, so I think that there's a lot of value um, from tech development, even setting aside fundamental issues, in pursuing all these modalities without, you know, having to attach that it's not worth something if it doesn't give us the scalable thing we want right now. Right. So, in terms of the protocols that you've been working on and been developing over the years, I mean, um, I suppose if, if it is possible to categorize them at all as sort of 
we're developing protocols from first principles to allow us to do things that we can't do, whether it's characterization or, or, or things such as that, versus sort of what I would, maybe optimization is not the best word for it, but maybe performance enhancing is a better word for it. Um, that because of some of these um, sophisticated techniques and statistical analysis, et cetera, et cetera, you're actually able to get better performance out of these systems without having to bug the experimentalist to build a cleaner system. I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, you know, the way I, I, I've heard this, you know, asked in terms of, say, grant applications is, what's your error budget? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I mean, uh, and I, so if I borrow that language for a moment, if you're trying to, you know, meet some sort of a fault tolerance threshold, then you get to make errors somewhere in your device but as long as the total amount of errors you're making doesn't exceed that threshold. Um, you know, so if you go and you find, hey, we're above that threshold, we need to eliminate errors, where <laughs> do you start, right? And you, you try and make advantages where the biggest gains can be made for, you know, the most reasonable effort, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, so if I look and say, hey, you're throwing away two orders of magnitude due to not characterizing your system as well as you could with the same data, then that's a very natural place for using, you know, the sorts of methods that um, Chris and Nathan and I have, you know, really tried to push hard on. Um, in other cases, though, we look and see, yeah, okay, this is not actually the predominant thing. Yeah, you could get a few percent better, but mm -hmm. maybe this is not the thing you need to attack right now. And it, it, it always, I think, really depends on that kind of an analysis of what, what, what gains can can you make in terms of error budget. Um, but you know, I, I, if I could come back for a moment to something you said, you used the sure. word sophisticated, and I, I, I think that's a good word. Uh, the word, but I, I, I would tend to say principled, in mm -hmm. that there's a lot of what the skill I find of statistics and quantum information comes down to is writing down the question that you're asking of an experimental system very precisely. And once you do that, the answer normally becomes uh, to what methodology you should use generally becomes a lot easier. That a lot of the difficulty is just precisely writing down what you mean. So and you sort of mean that if you ask the question correctly, the answer kind of sticks its hands up and waves at you. Yeah, and it yeah. might not be easy to implement that answer. It might take you some hoops to jump through to do that, but at least you know the shape of the answer. You know what the kind of thing you need to do is there, right? And yeah, so the answer waves its hand, as you say. Um, and this it, this one thing I'd like to point it, use as an example of this is least squares fitting, mm -hmm. right? This is a technique that's been around for a very long time. Could you summarize it in a sentence? Um, you have a model, mm -hmm. you have some data, you want to <laughs> vary that model until the data predicted by your model and the um, actual data has the smallest squared error between, uh, squared distance between the two as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and if you go and you look, it, you can actually derive that as being the maximum likelihood estimator. So this nice statistically principled estimator. But when you do that derivation, there's assumptions that come along with. Mm -hmm. And those assumptions hold very generally in large data regimes where you have strongly linear models, and, you know, that, but we don't 
tend to have that in the sorts of single shot limited devices and um, you know highly nonlinear measurement models. Mm -hmm. And so there, even though that least squares fitting is a very good principal technique, if we're not holding to the assumptions, then this means okay. We th that's not actually answering the question we think we have. But so you go back, you write down the question, and you see, oh, hey, here's where I'm violating that assumption. I need to change my technique. Right. Or here's where I'm meeting that assumption. Least squares fitting works very well, and there's very good, robust packages for dealing with it. Um, you know, but either way, you get either yes, I should use this well-known statistical, uh, statistically principled technique of least squares fitting, or I should use this principled thing. But the thing that makes it principled or not is that it matches the question that you're trying to ask. Mm -hmm. um, and if, it, you know, it, I, I can apply all sorts of statistical techniques that are sophisticated as you like, but answering the wrong question. So I think that sophistication is, at that point, a tool for making sure that we're doing things in a principled manner. I mean, it does sound like it's very laser focused, that you really have to take it system by system, question by question, protocol by protocol, and, and generalizations are either difficult to do or if you do them you can end up running into trouble uh, th there's some it, that's true to some extent but one of the things I very much like about Bayesian inference in particular as a, mo uh, as a way of approaching these kinds of things is that it lets you build up hierarchical models very nicely mm -hmm. so in the NV case right you can say here's what we would do with statistical inference if we could measure perfectly and then we say all right, well, presume something in the nature measured it perfectly, but we didn't see that result. We saw it through this measurement model. Mm -hmm. And now that lower level of this is, um, you know, the perfect measurement made of the system, that's not very specific to the system in question. It's that thing on top that I composed with that's very specific to that system. Right. So it lets us isolate the part that is general, that is a lesson we can all, you know, use as a tool across quantum uh, engineered quantum devices and then add on the part that's the thing we need to worry about in our particular systems mm -hmm. um, and that that's one reason why even where there do exist analytic techniques that work better than you know say using QInfer I still like to advocate QInfer is because that way when you want to add in another layer of describing your experiment in particular having that robust numerical uh, the support means that you don't have to throw out all your <laughs> throw out your entire solution that yeah. you've developed so far to add that additional bit of hierarchical reasoning to it. So what kind of things say, I mean we talked with Chris about QInfer a little bit and he obviously um, said to me look talk to more talk, talk to the <laughs> other Chris about this more he knows about. Um, so how much success have you found with this package so far, at least uh, even with experimental collaborations, or have you taken data sets from, from people and so run it, through it and see what you can get? As far back as um, my thesis, we did have um, you know experimental data that it was working on and things like that. Um, but the trouble is, it, it, but it, and you know there's the paper with Ian that I mentioned, and I think that that's uh, been a huge success as well. Um, you know, and there's ongoing collaborations and that I, there are some groups evaluating it now and starting to use it now. But it's a little bit funny. Um, the competition is not really, you know, QInfer versus using another statistical method or using, it's QInfer versus taking more data. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you know a lot of experimental groups are very very good at taking more data right and you know so it's it's it, i the argument is that this is a thing that will I'm trying to think how to put it um Going back to the sorts of error budgets, if I think in terms of time budgets, you know, a lot more time is, I think, entirely validly spent on, you know, making sure that you even have the right kind of experiment, making sure that you can fabricate things properly, making sure that, um, and the detail of, okay, now let's reduce our data collection requirements by a lot. Well, okay, that that's not seen as the most pressing issue all the time. But I suppose it could come in at a later date when it comes to calibration. Exactly. So, so take the D-Wave system, and regardless of what you think about that system, when they ship their machine, they set it up at some target yeah. location, I can't remember exactly, it was something like two weeks or, yeah. or something like that for them yeah. to go through and configure the and calibrate it, the entire system. And I suppose, yes, as it, you say, QMFER can probably slash that time to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know enough about the calibration procedure that they in particular do, but you know, I'd be willing to. Yeah, I, I think that that would be very likely. Um, you know, so I mean, we're, we've really been trying to tackle these sorts of research challenges that I think will be increasingly important as we go on, as data collection becomes more and more of a dominant cost rather than, uh, you know, so I mean, Part of it, so take something like tomography, right? So this, uh, it's a QCVV protocol uh, where you try to learn a state or a channel, so that is some noise process acting on the system. Um, and in essence, you're getting a very complete picture out of it. You're saying, I want to know everything about this state. I want to know everything about this channel. And that's why it works, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to really make a lot of decisions about, well, this is the information that's most relevant to me. You mm -hmm, just get mm -hmm. the entire state. You get the entire channel. Um, and that works very well when you're talking about one qubit, two qubits. You know, we've seen process tomography, channel tomography, uh, sorry, learning channels up to three qubits. Um, and that was a really impressive experiment. It took months of data collection. Mm -hmm. um, I, and the fact that it grows exponentially I don't even want to think about what a four-qubit process tomography mm -hmm. experiment would look like. You know, and we're talking about trying to build systems with dozens to hundreds of qubits. So if four is already, data collection is now dominant to such a degree I don't even talk about the experiment anymore to say that it's dominant. You know, that that's a place where we're going to have to do something different. Because, I mean, there's been a lot, especially at the theory group at Sydney. Um, there's been a lot of this on. Do they? Is it still under the general heading of like approximate process tomography and stuff like that now, or is it more? Because there's sort of Hamiltonian characterization. There's uh, state and process tomography. There's approximate process tomography and all of that. And I've been seeing sort of a coalescing so into a much more generalized structure. I mean, is your techniques are they are they broadly applicable across um, what maybe five or six years ago were very distinct? areas of quantum system identification and characterization. Well, so that's where I come back to talking about hierarchical modeling again, mm -hmm. right? Is that if I think of things in terms of Bayesian inference, many different characterization protocols differ in terms of what, you know, one level of that hierarchical modeling looks like. But I still have the measurement model for my system. I still have physics that gets me there. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, so there's a, a lot of the generality I think there comes from having well isolated, good design to how we build our statistical models, to how we build our experimental protocols. Um, you know, so I mean, if I talk about state or process tomography versus a randomized benchmarking, I'm still doing measurements that give, you know, and I can still talk about a measurement model on top of, um, you know, and I mean, there's, there's some it, technical issues that come about of, okay, do I measure the, it, how much do I have to assume about knowing how good my measurements are, and there's some very good, uh, very good research directions in terms of that. Um, this is also where you get to things like, you know, Robin Bloomcoot's group and their gates, their efforts in developing gate set tomography. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is. But um, I think a lot of the generality comes from unifying things with good statistical principles. You know, I've generally advocated Bayesian approaches because I, the benefits of hierarchical modeling, as well as a couple other things that I'm, uh, that I find it tends to match questions asked in experimental systems more closely, um, you know, and, but other groups are, you know, they build up that generality in terms of good frequentist models and very careful analysis um, and report and, you know, so however you do it, I, I think what's critical is to have that statistically, have a statistically principled approach where it's clear what questions you're asking, what answers you're providing, in a way that composes in terms of these, mm -hmm. you know, measurement models in terms of the characterization protocol that you want to develop. And then that gives us a way of developing protocols relatively independently of um, the other experimentally relevant concerns with a particular system. Right, right. So I suppose before we get on to, a, to another topic, um, just to close this out a little bit, is to, you know, what excites you moving forward in either sort of more foundational principles <laughs> or tech development or... Getting any things wrong. Getting things wrong. Yeah. I mean, that there's a lot that happens on the theory space. As you say, there's a lot of new protocols that have been developed. You know, we've worked on new statistical pr uh, tools for... Um, and we've only really started to see how those go wrong in experiment. Because I can guarantee you, it will. Like... Mm -hmm. As we do things, nothing works perfectly it, initially, like, or even the first few times, right? Like, and it's getting things wrong that we really learn to communicate better because it's like, ah, it went wrong because I assumed you could do this, and that's not easy. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's on me. I now know. I learned what the net thing is that I need to build better next time. Um, so I, I, I want to get things wrong in a creative way, mm -hmm. like to try and learn how to communicate better between these different disciplines. Um, and, you know, I think that the things will get wrong or maybe not very wrong, but, you know, I think these things work. But, you know, it, it still, it points us to where can we do better at, you know, incorporating design considerations at the experimental level in terms of assumptions at the theoretical level where mm -hmm. we can relax assumptions currently made to simplify theory to better make room for relaxed design constraints, right? So every time a theorist like me makes an assumption, an experimentalist trying to use the, my results, that now becomes a constraint on their experiment. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, I can do things with less assumptions, then that gives them more freedom to build 
and solve hard problems with you know less constraints and the flip side is if they have a constraint I can't just ignore that I can't right. say you know that's well okay to go do the impossible you know so uh, you know it, and I think where a lot of things go wrong is mismatches in that communication process so I think there's a lot of value in terms of building that communication to get things wrong and then fix them. Well, I suppose this leads in quite nicely to the second part that I wanted to, to talk to you about, which is your efforts sort of in this, this space of well, open science is one word for it, uh, reproducible research, I suppose, is another word for it. Um, I'm not overly familiar uh, with this, but you've been pushing quite hard, uh, especially in your more recent projects on this idea of make, basically not only making you know data sets available, but making analysis techniques and coding structures and basically being able to rewrite somebody's paper from the data that is yeah. produced from that paper. So uh, yeah. give me a bit of a history of how you got interested in this and I, the processes that come into this, what researchers now have to do um, if they wanted to sort of follow in your footsteps and, and become a part of this more sort of open science community. Um, so how did I get into this? Well, I think at least part of it was the realization that there were papers that were really important to my field. I don't want to mention names or sure, anything, sure, sure. because my, a lot of my point with this is that this is broad incentives across the entire field. So, I, you know, this is, I, but still, you know, there are papers I was very interested in reading because they made claims very relevant to research that I was interested in. And I realized that I could not meaningfully evaluate whether or not those claims were correct. You know, and as I started getting asked to referee papers and things like that, most of the papers I was asked to read, I, I have no way of saying that they're correct. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the part of it is, okay, are they matching the experimental assumptions that they're that to their theoretical, sorry, the experimental design constraints to the theoretical assumptions and it's in a way that I can actually it meaningfully interpret the result, and that's very difficult to do if there's not details of what the experimental design is, if there's not details about what theoretical tools are used. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, it makes it very hard to identify those mismatches that can undermine otherwise very good results. Um, you know, that it, and it's one of those where, you know, even when I've written papers myself, uh, and I've made mistakes, referees have been able to catch those primarily because of the level of detail we've provided. Mm -hmm. And we get to go and say, oops, uh -huh, okay, we'll fix that. Yep. Um, or, oh no, that's not actually a mistake. This is, you know, how, and we can give a better explanation that, you know, it, but either way, these are things that only really become possible when you're stating things as concretely as possible. You know, so that's kind of the practical reasons and history to it, I think, is, you know, if we, yeah, I, I mean, I can understand that. I've read papers myself where it's just I cannot figure out where you got this number from. Yeah, and sometimes they, it, you know, when you if you talk to them and you see in all fullness of detail, you see exactly where. Other times it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're scientists. We're doing things that are hard. There are lots of places to make mistakes, and plenty of very, very good people make mistakes that can kind of critically undermine mm -hmm. claim. Mm -hmm. Even if, you know, everything else is, you know, and often when you see that, it's like, okay, the mistake is fixable and maybe you get a somewhat weaker claim, but, you know, it, it, so it, it's, 
it's a difficult thing to try and evaluate what science other people are doing to try and evaluate the quality of your own work. Mm -hmm. You know, did I make a mistake in this? If you don't have that kind of clarity. Um, you know, so you can kind of imagine a process where you need to report a number of how well you're doing. You, your number's too low. Okay, so I go and I fix bugs. Okay, I found a bug. My number goes up. I stop looking for bugs. Yeah. Right? It's, um, you know, and maybe there's another bug and things actually went up too much. And, you know, it's, it's so it, you need that clarity to be able to say, here's not only what I believe, but why I believe it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so... And, I mean, all of this is, in some sense, an idea, right? It's a direction. It's not, you know, if you do check, 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 everything's fine. We don't have to think about it. Or we don't have to worry. And, uh, you know, you kind of made the comment at the very beginning of, it's hard. It is harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that part It takes of, a lot more work, and the academic system's not very incentivized for doing this kind of work and, and stuff right. like that. And, you know, so part of the direction I've been trying to push recently is, what makes it hard? Right, and some of it is, you know, even very small little things like, oh, well, if you want to attach source code, um, Archive expects it to be in a very specific format and it's a pain to upload it in that format, right? So here's a tool that does that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, and that's kind of the, uh, on one end of it, the other end is the incentive side of, well, okay, say somebody really does dot all the I's and crosses all the T's. How do you? It, it, how does that advantage the researchers who go that extra step over? And maybe that's not even the right way to think about it. But you know, incentivizing in general of you know how do we how do we reward the effort to be clear about these things? Um, and I mean, it, it's especially hard if I say, hey, go do open science so it's clear if you make mistakes, and then oh hey, I found a mistake. Mm -hmm. Well, I only found it because they're doing things right. You know, and this I've been on the other side of this, right? Like, you know, referees have caught an error in my paper because I said things more clearly. Yeah. You know, so that actually, uh, you know, I appreciated having that feedback, but from that perspective, it's like, oh, hey. Now I've got a whole bunch more work to do to fix it. You know, and that's even the best case. Maybe if a paper is rejected because there's a mistake, right? Like, that's <laughs> that seems like a kind of disincentive. But I think that part of the answer to that is... You know, if I'm refereeing, I try to ask for the most detail reasonable. I know not everybody can share source code, so at least say <coughs> the pseudocode that describes what you're doing. Mm -hmm. At least concretely cite what software you use and what parts of it. Like, you know, we all have different limitations based on expertise, policy, time, everything like that. You know, so I think that really when I talk about reproducibility and open science, I'm trying to point in a direction. Here's, you know, do the best you can in this direction. Um, and yeah, that, that does get into questions of incentive structure. It also gets into questions of tool building, like how do we build the right tools to make that easier rather mm -hmm. than harder. Um, and I think there, uh, you know, I, the tools that we've historically used in quantum information have made it very difficult to be open in these ways. Um, you know, I pick at MATLAB a lot, but I think that that's a very concrete example of it's not easy to package software in MATLAB. It's not easy to do literate programming as in, it's enabled by Jupyter. Mm -hmm. So if you're familiar with Jupyter Notebook, which lets you use things like everything from Python to Julia and mix code with plots with um, 
prose explaining it, equations, backing it up, right? That that makes it very easy to explain your source code in a way that people can read and mm -hmm. people can follow. And that there are some tools on the MATLAB side to do that, but they're much harder to use. They're much harder to do that kind of open science. Um, you know, your, your blog posts and that, which we'll link to in the podcast description, I mean, when I read over it, the, the sort of takeaway I got is that there are sort of disparate tools available for yes. this, but they don't necessarily talk to each other. They don't necessarily talk to, obviously, things like the archive and where we publish and how we publish and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That seems to be a lot of the, the, the hassle, is to try to get these things there in a package, um, standardised and pushing it out to people saying, hey, maybe you should do this. Yeah, and I mean that there's a lot of efforts in that direction of trying to package things better, trying to integrate things better, and trying to, you know, so if, say, six years ago, I say, hey, you know, I really strongly believe MATLAB is holding us back. Let's go do something better. Let's go use Python. Okay, I download Python, but then I also have to download the scientific software with because it's a generic <coughs> programming language and then has very useful scientific libraries on top of, and then I also have to install... And I mean, none of this was in particular necessarily difficult, but if it's an unfamiliar skill, the kind of common answer is, well, the heck with this, I'm going back to MATLAB, yeah. right? But now we have things like um, commercial distributions of Python, which, you know, are where the commercial is meant to support the open source efforts again by pouring money back in. Um, so, like, uh, I prefer Anaconda, but mm -hmm. then it's okay, you have one executable that gets you a reasonable base set of packages, tools to manage how to get what other, uh, whatever additional packages you need, and that's reduced some of the friction in that. You know, nothing that you can do with this you couldn't have done before, but it reduces the friction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so how do we look at reducing that elsewhere of, uh, you know, the folder structure that's convenient for me to write papers in is not the folder structure that's convenient for uploading to archive. That's friction. Uh, how do I provide my source code in a way that people can view it easily and understand it? Uh, you know, that's some friction between the way, you know, say archive currently displays mm -hmm. and, you know, these, uh, the tools that are available. How do I make sure that I have, you know, a single editor that doesn't force me to learn like three different editors if I'm working with a bit of Python here, a bit of tech here, a bit of shell scripting here. Um, and, you know, that's another source of friction. Um, so part of what I try to do with that blog post is by laying out a concrete set of steps that get you to a working environment. And many people will disagree about, you know, what they prefer. But so my point wasn't the best working environment, but a working environment. Mm -hmm. Then we can find pain points in there, and we can make those better. I mean, you do these things sort of very much, from what I can tell, off your own bat, and 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 try to structure things as you said into a working environment. Do you talk to people like who run the archive, and do you um, you try to engage these other platforms and saying, look, I've been trying to do this. This is where I've found it hard. So, a, do you get any response from them? Um. So I have in some places. I haven't. Uh, specifically gone to archive yet and that you know I mean I, I think that they're they've done a lot of very nice things in particular allowing you to provide supplementary material at all mm -hmm. in a very concretely versioned way along with everything else um, but you know so I from that standpoint I'd rather try to because of that I think the best thing I can do in good faith is make sure that the things I do match the effort that they've put in you know so my comments about 
you know, the, the, the format is different, that's not a criticism of. It's just a reality of we have two systems, they have different expectations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I, I want to try and make the good faith efforts I can to meet people in the middle. Um, you know, and I can't go up to a theorist and say you really should be using Linux. I can't go up to an experimentalist and say you really should be using OSX. I can't dictate these kinds of technological decisions. So it's again a meet in the middle of what tools can I use that allow me to effectively collaborate across these kinds of differences rather than saying, you know, this is how you should structure your personal computing environment for research. Um, you know, when I make comments about, you know, MATLAB, it's not even, hey, you're a bad person for using MATLAB. It's we should perhaps disincentivize that that's the only way we teach. Um, and we should perhaps, you know, be more willing to incentivize taking the additional time to learn other languages. I like using Python. Some of the other people in my group like using Julia. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome because they can talk to each other, right? I don't have to say you're a bad person for using Julia or he doesn't have to tell me I'm a bad person for using Python. Like it's, um, it, you know, so that, um, trying to find ways that we can build good tools that work across these kinds of differences instead of normalizing. Right. It, it, like just saying it has to be this way. Do you get much feedback from people sort of outside your collaborative circle? Like, you know, I've seen what you've done. I want help to do the same thing. And let's work together on this little bit or that little bit. So I'm starting to. Um, you know, so I, I haven't um, gotten a lot of feedback outside of my immediate collaborative circle on the blog post in particular that I mentioned, but I've gotten some. Mm -hmm. And the feedback I've gotten has been very useful. It's been, hey, here's another thing you might have done differently, or, oh, hey, this really helped me do this. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, I don't expect or even want that people do things the same way I do, but it's it's really good to see that feedback of, yeah, that, you know, you're promoting an approach, an approach that you think's the right way to do it. So well, a right way. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, there are plenty, you know, so I mean, for instance, one of the, in that blog post I mentioned, I use Visual Studio Code, right? It's open source and it's cross-platform, so I like it. But there are other open source cross-platform text editors that one could use, like GitHub Atom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so a legitimate source of disagreement is, I don't like VS Code, it's too purple. I'm yeah. going to go with, <laughs> it, no, I mean, it's like, it. Um, okay, now theming support, but whatever. I mean, it, 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 you, you might legitimately prefer Atom and want to build tool sets that work for Atom instead mm -hmm. of code. Um, and that's cool, because we don't have to agree. It, 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 I think a lot of where focus in building good reproducible tools for, you know, research is building tools that support rather than enforce. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it, so I mean, it, have I gotten feedback outside of my collaborative circle? Yeah, I, I have, and I think that that's been one way that's come about is that, uh, you know, the feedback I've gotten is I really kind of encouraged me to think more concretely about my own process and how would I reproduce even my, what I do, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people have come up with different answers and that's awesome because do you, yeah. do you, have you found that people who you don't necessarily collaborate with, but who may be trying to take your work and, and extending it or taking it to the next step, who have come back to you and said, look, the way you've laid this out 
has made my job a hell of a lot easier to, to take it to the next step. Has that, has that happened yet, or is so it a bit too new? I, I think it's a little too new. So in particular, like some of the tech build management stuff that I've written, you know, it's been used in papers that I've written or have been an author on. Um, I'm not aware of anybody else using it, but if so, awesome, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but, and I think that it's a direction that there's certainly a lot of people in the field who may individually talk about, but I don't think it's a direction that we really, in the field as a whole, say, is important yet. And that's part of why I try and be visible about is to say, look, I, I mean, regardless of what any individual can or can't do, it's important that it's something we value as a community, you know, and that value comes across in tools. It comes across in how we reward scientists for using uh, some tools well or, in, you know, mm -hmm. not, I, I mean, a little bit of a tangent on that, but they're NumPy, right? The core numerical support to Python, which has been immensely valuable in huge numbers of different applications got its first grant ever yesterday, <laughs> right? So we're not financially supporting that no. tool. That f the fact that we get such use out of it comes from it gets use in other fields outside of academic research. And they're happy to support it because they use it very heavily. But we're not supporting this tool we depend on. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of discouraging to see this is a critical piece of tool building for doing open, reproducible science. And by and large, we're not funding it. Uh, you know, I've worked out fairly well and that I found, you know, people like uh, Steve that are really good to work with and do appreciate and do support, you know, and I spend a couple weeks trying to go do, you know, the software yeah. tools that we need better. But that's not something everybody necessarily, it, it, you know, that's not a value that we necessarily have as a whole community. Um, and, you know, so I mean, I, I'd like... Especially to as you, you try to slowly make your way up the academic ladder. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it, it's one of those where I feel like a lot of these, it, it comes down to skills that, you know, we aren't really taught in our undergrad, you know, so we get to some point where we need to program and it's like, well, okay, how do I do that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a very smart researcher who just doesn't have that in their background, there's choices like, do I program something that just gets it done now, or I take the time to really learn properly and more detailed, but that'll slow me down now. Um, you know, and if you even go a little bit further out, it's often that kind of skills development really does pay off, in even kind of medium term. But it's still, you know, we're at a pace where it's hard to justify developing even medium term useful skills, mm -hmm. right? It's all about, we need to write this paper now. We've got these deadlines, we have these, you know, and it's... It's a little discouraging. But. Do you see it happening, you know, across the board? Because I know certainly with larger collaborations, so you take take the LHC and CERN and yeah. take you know, maybe some of these bio projects where they do have relevant metrics that are related to, to academic achievement, grants, et cetera, et cetera, that do come in the forms of code commits or database yeah. uh, commits or, oh. or these kind of things. Now, quantum information is sort of a different animal because it's by and large, comparatively small groups of people. Yeah. Um, um, and papers are still sort of our number one I, I thing mean, to get done. Yeah, and, you know, you look and um, I, I think that is it rewarding based off of code commits and things like that is 
a useful way to go. I mean, there is a danger of that, that we then build the same kinds of things we're trying to get away from in, say, bibliometrics. Um, you know, so if I look, for instance, there are, it, there are gender disparities in terms of how much people get cited mm -hmm. in astrophysics. This was measured very concretely. Women, on average, get cited about 10% less when you control for all factors. Mm -hmm. Right, so that means our bibliometrics are introducing a systemic bias. So as we introduce other ways of rewarding researchers, we need to be careful of not creating that same kind of bias. And if I look and say, let's reward based off of code commits, then I have to look at other studies about, say, how there are differences in the way quality is perceived based uh, on whether or not a commit was written by somebody with a feminine-sounding username. Mm -hmm. um, and so that should kind of worry us, I think, in that it's, it certainly helps with the immediate thing of, hey, we're rewarding open science, but it doesn't really do us much good if we then just recreate in open science all the problems that we currently have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I don't have a good answer to that. I don't have a... No, it's, it's one of the things, and obviously you're, you're somebody who does think about this kind of stuff, is, is the idea of bibliometrics, whatever they may be versus what else can be done when you have a hundred or a thousand job applications and how do you figure out which person do you want? Yeah. Does it turn into a does it turn into a buddy system? Like I know this person. I mean and I know this person is good or is it bibliometrics, is it a combination of the two, or is it something else? The the name escapes me, but the there's, you know, one of these internet laws about, you know, the moment you use a metric to make evaluations, it ceases to be a good metric. Mm -hmm. Right, so I mean, in some sense, the problem is we're not carefully analyzing our own use of metrics, and when even when we do analyze, we're not applying the results of that analysis to our use of. And so, in a lot of ways, metri the metrics we use are easily gained. We know that, and so we fall back on what we know, like buddy system, as you say, um, because it's very difficult to evaluate when you have a whole stack of applications, a whole stack of. Um, CVs, you know, okay, well, is this somebody who has a lot of citations because they played the game well or did, because they did good science? Mm -hmm. um, and so we rely on personal recommendations to get around that. And they there's game so too. much bias that goes into mm -hmm. that. Uh, but, you know, what else can we do with the sorts of data that we're given? Uh, you know, so I think it's something we need to think very carefully about, especially with how much money is in the field right now and how much we're growing as a result. I mean, that growth is going to be very difficult to incorporate in a fair and useful way if we don't think very carefully about the way we build and apply metrics. Mm -hmm. You know, and the application, it, talking about open science is one place where that matters. Um, it, it, gender and racial disparities are another place where that really matters. Um, you know, and I, I mean, it's it's no secret that there's <laughs> a lot of discrimination in our field. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of the way that gets institutionalized is, as I mentioned with that study about citation metrics, we simply cite papers less if they're written by women. Mm -hmm. That's an observable fact. Um, you know, so that matters when you go and apply for promotions. It matters when you, uh, you know, so what kinds of biases against reproducibility, what kinds of biases and discrimination do we introduce in the way we evaluate researchers? Mm -hmm. As I said, I don't have a great answer to that. I think it comes from trying to listen to that sort of meta-analysis that is done, listening to people who are most affected by. 
Uh, so I mean, it's a kind of listening that I think we need to do a much better job of as a community. Well, we're getting to our hour here, um, so that's usually we don't want to go too long, otherwise people start tuning out. Fair enough. So the first thing uh, I'd like to do at the end is there anything you want to plug, anything happening, um, anything of interest that you would like to point people at? Um, so I mean, I think that, you know, as far as what I might want to plug, you know, we kind of hit a lot of that in the discussion already. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I'm proud of the work that Chris and I did mm -hmm. with our collaborators on QInfer. Um, I'm very happy with, you know, the sorts of things I've tried to work through on my blog on, you know, providing a set, if not the set of tools to do reproducible science. And, you know, I mean, if I were to plug anything, it's, uh, you know, go, go look at those and think about, you know, the kinds of things you might want to do. And yeah. Think about how you might want to build your own approach well, we'll off of. We'll certainly link to all of that and to your Twitter handle where you discuss a lot of this stuff online as well. And uh, I would encourage people to, to go take a look and get into contact with Chris if it, it's something you're interested in or something you want to discuss. Sounds great. Well, thank you very much. No, thank you very much for giving me your time. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>